Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Blackhawks Talk podcast. I'm Pat Boyle. Joined this week by Nick Gizmondi, Scott King, and Charlie Ramelli Otis. We'll get the guys' take on the Edmonton experience overall for the Blackhawks, what they liked, what they didn't like. We'll also get into Stan Bowman and Jeremy Colleton, who addressed the media on Friday. What is the cap situation for the Blackhawks? Can they bring Corey Crawford back and sign those restricted free agents? We'll get the guys' takes on that as well. And what were some of the uh, coaching decisions, the critiques that were given to Jeremy Colleton? We'll get the guys' takes on that and how Colleton responded as well. And we'll finish things up with our bold prediction. Could a core member of the Blackhawks be moved in the upcoming offseason? It's all coming up next on the freshest installment of the Blackhawks Talk podcast. Born in the Rockies, Coors Light is lagered cold for a crisp, clean taste. Filtered cold to ensure clarity and brightness. And packaged cold for peak refreshment. Because those who thirst for more deserve the world's most refreshing beer. With Charlie Romeliota, Scott King, Nick Gizmondi, I'm Pat Boyle. All right, guys, before we dive into what Stan Bowman and Jeremy Colleton had to say on Friday. Let's put a bow on the, the Edmonton experience. Charlie, I'll start with you. What was your biggest takeaway from the, uh, the few weeks that the Hawks uh, were in the uh, playoffs? Yeah, it was kind of a mixed bag of emotions. And I wrote about it the night that they got eliminated. You know, just looking back on the whole experience, I thought it was really encouraging that they beat the Edmonton Oilers in four games. And, you know, some of the young guys looked good, like Kirby Dock and Dominic Kubalik obviously was sensational in that first round. And then you fast forward to the Vegas series, and obviously we knew that it was going to be a very difficult series, but it was kind of a reminder of how long or, you know, there's still a long way to go for the Blackhawks to really get back to being one, a playoff contender, but then two, a Stanley Cup contender, which is a completely different level. And so I think we saw with the Vegas Golden Knights where they're able to win in different ways. Like they can be physical, they can play a tight checking game, they can beat you in transition, and the Blackhawks can really only beat you in one way. And they need to get stellar goaltending as well. Uh, So I think that was kind of a reminder. It was like, okay, there was some excitement that they beat the Edmonton Oilers and, you know, they were a really good five-on-five team and and whatnot. And then you fast forward to the Vegas series and you're like, man, they're still – there's still work to be done here for the Blackhawks to make significant progress. Scotty. I just, I think watching it, that, that gap between uh, in terms of talent between the veterans and younger players, as well as the disconnect we thought might've been there in terms of communication and and guys talking about the job they got to do and knowing it, it was more narrow than we thought. I think you saw that, especially in the Oilers series, the young guys started stepping up right away. A lot of them kept contributing in the Vegas series and I don't think anyone should be hanging their heads after that series against Vegas either. I, I thought, first of all, you play a good team in Edmonton. 
top power play in the league, top two point producers, second best penalty kill. That's a good team. I think a lot of years that team will, will get to the second round and maybe even advance beyond that. And then in Vegas, yeah, the, the better team obviously won. There's a bit of a drop in terms of talent and terms of rolling four lines, uh, guys across the board who's better. But there was three losses the Hawks had that were decided by one goal. I think that's still pretty interesting. We're talking about a number 12 team sneaking in that a lot of people wrote off earlier in the year. I think um, – I think their future is brighter than everybody thought and the way they handle themselves in the postseason overall was really impressive. And we just heard Stan Bowman and Jeremy Calton earlier on, on Zoom today talk about how challenging bubble life was. And in terms of dealing that and being ready in Chicago before they even went there, I think they did a really good job in Edmonton. Yeah, I, 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 think that, I think that it was very revealing for a lot of reasons. For me, I think I, I liked what Scott said about seeing that, that gap maybe close a little bit. I think it was certainly something that we looked at a little bit throughout the year. We talked about it a ton on the podcast, and, and I, I think that you, you saw a gap close between maybe two different schools of thought there, and I think you saw that, that gap come a little tighter between the veterans and those new guys. Obviously, everybody's super impressed with the effort and the – the work that uh, Kirby Doc put in during the quarantine, certainly he wins the award, award for most improved and most best use of his time. It was incredible. He was a different hockey player, in my opinion, uh, both physically and mentally, I thought. So um, I think my biggest takeaway was is that, that you, you, you did capitalize on an opportunity to sort of go back to your youth hockey roots there. And you're, you're, you're in a hotel with all of your teammates, with – pretty much nothing else to do other than hang out together and play hockey. And uh, the results showed on the ice. I thought it was a much more cohesive group, but it was also revealing in, in the sense that you saw what the top of the NHL looks like in, in terms of the Vegas Golden Knights firsthand. And then you saw where, okay, that's the bar. So um, obviously there's some, there's some work to be done for, for the Chicago Blackhawks. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody, but I don't think there is as much work as everybody wanted to make it out to be throughout the course of the season. And I've been saying it all year long. There's a ton of positives on this team. There are. There's a ton of positives on this in this organization and on that team. And I think that those were highlighted just as much as the understanding that there's some work that needs to be done. And now there's a little bit of a brighter light shown on what that work is. So let me ask you, when you say the gap has been closed, Nick, do you think this is a – a four through eight seed next year, uh, the Blackhawks, as far as the playoffs? Where's your ceiling well, for that? Sure. I think the gap was closed in terms of the tightness and the, the, the fortitude in that room. I think that there's certainly some young guys that stepped up, most notably the play of, of Kirby Doc. I thought Kubalik was, was good too. And I think that that playoff experience for those guys and that pressure and that sting of, of maybe being in the fight and losing by a goal, but not being good enough kind of, uh, amplifies itself. Now, I don't think I can make a call on, on how this team is going to be next season, because I think the biggest question mark, and I I know we're going to get to it is the goaltending. What is, what does the goaltending situation look like for the Chicago Blackhawks? And, and I'll point to the fact that, and I've been saying this for a long time since I've covered hockey, that you could be the best team in the world, but if you don't have a goaltender that can get the job done for you in the Stanley Cup playoffs, you are not going to win games. And, and I think we saw that a little bit last night in the, in the Dallas-Calgary game, and I think we, we've seen that across the board. So in order for this team to really be a, a solid contender, Corey Crawford was amazing. 
Is Corey Crawford still a Blackhawk next year? I, I don't know what that answer is. So I think a lot of the future of this team depends on how deep they're going to be in between the pipes for the next uh, next few years. And if they have um, if they have somebody that is Corey Crawford or Corey Crawford-esque that can backstop that net and they continue to develop the way that they did, I think, in the last three, four weeks, then, yeah, there's a good chance they make the playoffs again next year. No question. So uh, we'll get more into Corey coming up. My biggest takeaway from Edmonton, and it actually started before, just how seriously this group took it. Like when they reported to fifth third, it was a different pace to their practices, uh, to their scrimmages. And this was with the cloud of whether or not Corey was going to even return hanging over their head. And it didn't affect, to me, their preparation. So they competed hard. I think they did. They competed hard in every game uh, against the Oilers and against Vegas. They are still way too reliant on their, on their goaltending, stealing wins. Uh, you know, you, you cannot continually give up the high danger chain. I mean, you, one of their worst games was the game they, they beat Vegas. I mean, 96 shot attempts, 49 shots on goal. 18 or so high danger chances. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Uh, and, and, you know, Corey wasn't even at his best throughout the, the two and a half week run or so. Uh, they're just not a real deep team. When John Quenville is playing uh, on the top line in an elimination game and he only played nine games in the NHL that year, spent most of his time in Rockford, that tells me your roster is just not, is not deep enough. And, and then the power, and then the, the one thing that, you know, they, they hung in these games with Vegas where, where sometimes you can make up for your lack of talent from, from one to 22 is, is on special teams. And time and time again, this year, power play wise, it was just ineffective. So all in all, though, I mean, I, I do think there were some positives to take. And I also think, you know, there were some eye-opening things like Adam Boquist struggling uh, against big, bigger physical players. And, uh, you know, Kubalik was awesome, but then you would see times where, you know, you didn't see him enough. I love Doc. I mean, it was fa- he was fantastic. Got to get a little more selfish at times. You know, some of those two-on-ones, even mini breaks, you know, didn't get a shot off. Um, those things will come with time. but. All in all, I think this was, you know, invaluable experience and it, w- it was good to see uh, them get this taste. Uh, let's move on to what the uh, Stan Bowman and, and Jeremy Carlton had to say on Friday. And uh, I'll just start, first of all, Charlie, you, your thoughts on, on kind of what Stan had to say and your biggest takeaway from him. Yeah, obviously I was curious about how they're going to approach this offseason with the financial um, outlook of this team going forward because literally a week before the NHL put its season on pause, the Blackhawks were operating under the impression that the salary cap could jump as high as $6.7 million for next season. And that's just excluding the fact that a new U.S. television deal is on the horizon and Seattle is entering the league next season. So they were probably mentally preparing for the coming years to be very favorable for them. And now the pandemic hits and, you know, the players in the league have to renegotiate a new CBA. And so this next few years, they are not going to have a lot of cap flexibility going forward. And so you have a lot of things to take care of in-house when it comes to Dominic Kubelik, 
Dylan Strom, Corey Crawford, most notably the RFAs and UFAs. And you only have right now $7.3 million in cap space to work with. So I was curious to see how they're going to approach this going forward because they're going to have to get uncomfortable in the ways they evaluate the roster and explore potential trades, explore the buyout, which they haven't used in years. And so, uh, you know, I just thought my, you know, my biggest takeaway was, you know, what, what they're going to do with the roster. But also, I, I thought it was very interesting when he was asked, you know, what's, what's the solution to this, you know, to take the next step. And even Jeremy Colleton said this too, is it's a mentality. And I thought that was very interesting. And he, he also deferred to the personnel decisions to Jeremy and basically said, well, that's more of a Jeremy question than it is a me question. Kind of like, you know, the roster we put in place going into the season was a playoff roster. And so that's more of a, you know, a personnel decision or if the players didn't have the right mentality. And I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. I don't think one is more at fault than the other. I do think there are holes in the roster. And I also think that maybe the Blackhawks aren't playing the best style of hockey suited for this group. And we saw it in October. They were really bad in October. Like they were, you know, they may obviously made a system correction in November. And from then on, they actually from November 1st and on, they had the most points or they they had, um, they tied the Edmonton Oilers for most points from November on. Like they were tied together. I shouldn't say most points, but they were tied with the Oilers. So it wasn't a huge discrepancy from November on. And I wonder if they played that way from the very beginning if things would have changed during the regular season, but you can't argue they're still last in high danger chances, last in scoring chances. They're still, they're still, uh, they still have a lot of work to do to kind of fix. I don't think it's one solution. Like they still have to piece this together in the off season, both roster wise and personnel wise. I want to get and pick apart what you were talking about as far as fixing the defensive issues coming up. But first, you started off with Stan in the cap situation. Here's Stan Bowman discussing that on Friday's teleconference. Uh, we do have some decisions to make. That's that's true. Uh, I think we're in a group as a group of teams that are in the same boat, and uh, the flat cap is uh, a challenge, but. At the same time, I, I think we have some ideas on what we're going to do. Uh, you know, the, that process is just starting right now. Um, had a couple of meetings since uh, we finished the season. And we're going to have more over the coming weeks to, to map out how that's going to play out. But, um, you know, it, it's a reality of our game. And this is, this is where we're at as a sport. And, uh, you know, we'll make it work. And that's our job is to figure out how. Uh, we can have some flexibility. So that, that's going to be part of it, uh, as well as making sure that we can uh, keep the players we need to keep. So uh, it's a balancing act, and it's something that, uh, you know, we've put a lot of thought into already, and we're going to keep working through in the coming weeks. So, Scott, $7.3 million in cap space roughly for, for the Hawks. And, again, they've got – Restricted free agents like Kubalik, Strom, Kajula, and of course, if they want to sign Corey Crawford, they're going to have to sign some goaltender. So they've got to, uh, you know, have some money allotted for that. So there's a lot that still needs to be done, and not a lot of of cap space to do it. Well, it's interesting to hear Stan talk about, you know, 
the value for a guy being in a situation where he might want to stay there, right? The hometown discount. You're hoping Corey Crawford does that. He has a family in Chicago. He's been a part of two cup teams. The guys love him in the room. You heard Jonathan Taves after the last game of the season just rave about how he handled all these big games as we're used to after having COVID just a few weeks prior, or at least quarantining from COVID a few weeks prior uh, before getting to Edmonton. So you hope that kicks in there and they can sign him or figure out a way to do so but but like um, we heard Stan talk about like Charlie mentioned with the roster there's a couple RFAs who I thought improved their case to to stay or get re-signed by the Hawks you look at Slater Cuckoo the way he upped his game I mean looking like a pretty decent top four defenseman I would say in, in playoff hockey and getting in on offense and playing well defensively and uh, you know I asked I asked Stan about Slater and uh, Drake Kajula seemed like he kind of mentioned Kuku a little bit more, but I thought Kajula, just the way he plays that hard-nosed style and uh, the way he was getting in on the offense, he had a three-game point streak to finish the year there against Vegas those last three games. I thought that that play he made in game five where he kept the puck in Vegas' zone and, and got the puck to Kane so in the slot so Kane could work his magic in front of liner, I thought that was awesome and indicative of, of the offense that Kajula has. But there, there's a couple other guys, um, RFAs, they're going to have to figure it out. And obviously, Kubalik getting a new deal. I mean – there's not a lot of calf space that you really do got to figure out what they're going to do here. And I think uh, Crawford is for sure a priority and you hope that he will take a discount. But I mean, he gets just again, proved his case that he could be a number one guy anywhere and turn it on under any circumstances. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, let's get into that. And Nick, you know, the, the hometown discount, I thought Stan put it well, it really comes down to the, the player uh, figuring out what does uh, the known quantity how much is that worth? How much is yeah. it worth to, to stay in Chicago? Uh, you know, the treatment you get. I will say this, it, you know, the, if the Hawks continue to allow the most high danger chances and and the most scoring chances and, and all the different analytics that you look at, it, you know, it's not exactly the most enticing place for a goalie to come to work. You're going to see a lot of rubber. That's for sure. I mean, that's been going on for, for six years now. So I, I don't think it's anything that, that uh, Corey Crawford is not used to seeing. And I think he relishes in that. I mean, hey, listen, we, uh, hockey players love doing their job and his job is to keep uh, that uh, little black uh, piece of vulcanized rubber from going in the net. And he's pretty, pretty excellent at it as we saw. So I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the workload affects his, his thinking. Um, you know, obviously the financials affect everybody's thinking. Um, so, I mean, that, that factors in. They're, they're, they're human beings, but they're also smart people that have other very smart people in their ears letting them know what they think they need to do financially and, you know, career-wise. But, you know, I think that Corey Crawford is a guy that would would look at taking a home discount, not because he needs to be paid less, because he should be paid whatever he wants. The guy's been unbelievable. He's an incredible character person. Two cups. I mean, I could go on and on about how highly I think of Corey Crawford, but I think for him, it's just what does he need to, what does he need to do to make himself and his family in the best possible spot? Maybe that's staying in Chicago. It's comfortability. It's familiarity. It's 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 a sense of being a part of something. It's a legacy in a lot of terms. I mean, he's like he's won a few cups already, so. He's in a he's in a great spot. Nothing needs to be done or said to cement the fact that Corey Crawford um, is a rock star in in the history of the NHL. So I don't know. I think Stan was right. I think it comes down to the player and his personal choice. I mean, I think about 
my own situation in a lot of ways. And you think about, well, when you like somewhere, are you willing to take a little less money to stay there? Yeah, absolutely. But everybody's different. And uh, I think a lot of factors come in. And I think the thing that most fans need to remember is that they are human beings and there are things that weigh. And it, there is there is things that tug on the heartstrings that tug a little bit harder than money does sometimes. So we'll see what happens with Corey. I think, I think they're going to figure it out with him. I do. I do too. I, I think, um, but you can't insult him either because he's going to be 36 in December. So right around the time that the, the new season starts, he doesn't have a, a, a huge amount of time to take another bite at the apple as far as NHL career. I mean, this, if you looked at it, under normal circumstances, this would probably be his last big contract, but these aren't normal circumstances. So there couldn't be some market correction. It may behoove him to do a one or two year deal and hopefully post pandemic, you know, after the cap is flat for a couple of years, there's some correction and he could, you know, make more money down the road. But there's so many ifs in that equation, Charlie. I, I think somewhere around $4.5 million would be maybe ideal incentive base. Two years uh, around you know, $9 million uh, might be something that could work for both sides. Charlie, you're, you're muted, buddy. I would, thanks, TV. I, I, would, <laughs> I would agree. And I do, like Corey Crawford is on record also saying he doesn't want to be a backup right so like if he you know obviously he's from Montreal or you know it's not like he's going to pick up and move and go to a desired location you know just to a go win another Stanley Cup or b you know take a lesser role because you know maybe he wins a Stanley Cup as a backup like he doesn't want to do that he still wants to be a starter and so I think that's why the marriage between Crawford and the Blackhawks is going to like it should work you know both sides should be able to come to some sort of agreement so I would be really surprised if Corey Crawford is not back in Chicago next year the other thing I wanted, and you, you touched on it, Charlie, was the answer to, I asked Stan about, you know, where he felt this team was defensively and the, the issues of allowing all the high danger chances. And, you know, Stan said it was a mentality and kind of talked about putting the team in good spots and sure the young players need to mature, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's uh, if you're offensive minded, still having the mentality of defending before you you get into what is your comfort zone as an offensive defenseman. And then you heard Colleton say, you know, it's a commitment to doing everything right on your shift. And I guess I, as I'm listening to it, I'm like, I, I understood, I, I get what they're saying in, in an ideal world. Yeah, you'd want. Uh, this commitment and uh, putting the team in a good spot, you know, every shift. But I would assume that that most of the players on the roster, that's the thought they have going into a game anyways. But what, you know, they can have all the, the best intentions in mind. It's what are the results on the ice? And we saw it too many times in the Vegas series, a deep pairing get hemmed in uh, the defensive zone for an extended shift. And that's where, the spin cycle got going and Vegas would rack up three and four quality chances in, in one shift. So I, I don't know if, if necessarily the answers are with this current uh, group that they have and with guys like Mitchell knocking on the door. I don't think there's any quick fix to this. For me, PB, I just think that that Vegas series, they're so 
noticeably outmatched, right? And you have Oquist seeing top pairing minutes with Duncan Keith. Now, what does that do for Duncan Keith? It cuts back on his game. He's not jumping in into the offense the way he should. You probably get a few more goals there maybe the way, you know, he competes, the way he showed up to camp. Like you were saying, those guys are ready. He was one of them. Also probably limits some of the the D he likes to play. So I thought as, as much as throughout both series, you saw a lot of the younger guys improve and take their game to the next level. Boquist obviously struggled, but on the same hand, this is some pretty valuable experience for him to have because they played a Stanley cup contender. Uh, you know, someone, a team that I think can, can definitely get it done in these playoffs that really kind of, you know, undress their, their weaknesses. And Boquist was one of them in that series, just because they're playing such a good team. But, hey, I think Oli Mata improved a lot, not just offensively. We saw his numbers uh, in the postseason. Offensive numbers were great, but he improved defensively. Connor Murphy, I thought, was a stud for most of the postseason. And uh, like I said, if Keaton had to change his game, he would have been really, really noticeable as well. Nick, what'd you make of the blue liners? I think the boost of uh, getting you know, Dahan back into the mix was was good as well. Like I was real excited about that. I wasn't sure when he suffered his injury. You know, I didn't know if he would go through the rehab and come back again, or if he would maybe call it a career. And to see him back in some semblance of form of what I'm used to seeing Calvin Dahan play at, I was excited about that. So I think that. You know, there's some some obviously big positives from what we saw from the blue line, and I I don't know what quite the ceiling is going to be on a guy like Ian Mitchell when he does get into the lineup. I watched him play personally in in Denver, obviously uh, a couple of times this season. I think he's he's a star. The kid is a star, and he's going to be a star. I'll be interested to see when he gets into the league though, and 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 how his first couple games go against those those bigger, you know, larger, stronger older guys uh you know obviously in college you don't really necessarily get that you're sort of kind of mostly playing with your own age so it'll be interesting to see what the Mitchell effect is and and how that transpires and and obviously I think you know Jeremy Carlton talked about in that press conference on Friday about just exactly what he was hoping for and, and what he thought the mood was going to be or the move excuse me on on fortifying that defense and I think there's some work to be done there and I think that there's still some buy-in to be had there um, but if there was one person that shined for me the most out of everybody, not only in terms of just gameplay, but fit and fitness, Duncan Keith was, geez, he's unbelievable. I mean, if Kirby Doc was as good as he was in terms of his off, off uh, downtime, quarantine, whatever we want to call it now, Duncan Keith was a beast. Yeah, what did you think of Keith and Boquist together, Charlie? I liked when Keith and Murphy were paired and DeHaan and Boquist. I, I know some teams – genuinely think that two offensive-minded defensemen can work. Um, I tend to, to go with, uh, like, having, you know, one offensive-minded def- defenseman paired with a defensive-minded defenseman. Yeah, I agree. We definitely did see a different Duncan Keith when he was paired with a DeHaan or a Connor Murphy, and I probably think for the better. Maybe in the long term, the, the Keith Boquist pairing is, is certainly going – I think it's going to work. But in the, in the playoffs, I, I definitely felt like Duncan Keith felt like he had to cover a little bit more ground defensively and make up for, for some of those um, defensive deficiencies that, that Boquist has. And we obviously saw that miscommunication they had in, in one of the games that led to a, a really early goal. And so I think over time that will get better. But I agree with you, Pat. I think Duncan Keith is at his best when he doesn't have to worry about his partner and he can just play his game. Hiring? 
With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jeremy Carlton was asked about some of the coaching decisions he made during the uh, the Vegas series, specifically holding on to a timeout, uh, Quenville playing in game five, Taves not being on the ice late in that contest. Uh, Scotty, what did you think of uh, Jeremy's responses to some of the uh, coaching critiques? First of all, I think you saw how mature how mature he's gotten as a coach, right? Because I took that as complete honesty. It, like, it would have been great to hear him say, yeah, I made these mistakes, but he didn't think so. That's what him and the coaching staff felt at the time. He had reasons to support every issue that he was asked about uh, for those game five decisions. And look, he's not John Tortorella. He didn't give a one word response and then stand up and, and walk out. So yeah, I, I definitely see why people took issues with a lot of those things. And I also give him credit for saying, uh, yeah, you know, on that, um, those last couple of minutes there, I thought, I thought Johnny Taves looked very tired and, you know, I don't know if Taves would like hearing that or, or maybe he agrees and say, yeah, I was absolutely gassed and that was the right coaching decision. But I, I think that his response and kind of not just owning up to it, but having the specific reasons for why those decisions were made kind of shows how he's matured as a coach and, you know, gets his first postseason NHL win in a series against, um, against the Oilers. So it was a big, experience for him very valuable for him as much as we're talking about the players right now Nick what'd you think of what uh Carlton had to say yeah I I, I actually I thought there they were some of the best answers and some of the most uh fact uh backup answers we've heard him say I was very impressed with Jeremy Collins candor and his answers during the press conference I thought you know he got asked some tough questions and he thought he handled it real well and I thought he he had explanations for the reasoning that he did everything. And listen, I, we, we, we have that hindsight, right? And, and obviously we know that that's a 2020 view. And he even mentioned that. Yeah, you can take a look back at the door and you can, I think he actually said there's about four others that you can walk, four other doors that you can walk through. Um, when you look back on it, maybe those are the doors you should have gone through. But when you're in those moments on the bench as a hockey coach, um, and obviously I've never coached in the NHL or at an extremely high level, but I've been in that, that situation where, you know, your guys, you look down the bench and maybe you got a feeling or maybe you, maybe your guy gives you a look or maybe you overhear what he's saying to somebody else or maybe you hear it in his voice or his breath. And so you make a decision that you make and, you know, all of that stuff I feel like is, is collaborative for Carlton too. I think that he's very interactive with the guys that are on his bench. You see him constantly talking to the, 
to other coaches too. So I think there's a consensus on the decisions that he makes. I don't think anything is, I think he's the leader on that bench, but I don't think there's anything that's, that's done exclusively by him with other people kind of telling him, I don't think you should do this. And he does it anyway. So, um, you know, he made some decisions. I also was looking at the, the, the timeout. I was, I was the guy sitting at the, you know, sitting at the bar, like, come on, call a timeout. But everybody's got the reasons for, for doing what they do. I, I, I like Jeremy. I thought, I thought, uh, I thought the decisions that he made, um, were, were, you know, without being there and being on the bench and knowing you just got to, tr- you got to trust the guys. So, uh, hindsight, right? Pat? Yeah. I mean, but here's the thing. I, I've got a, I got a resume that, that shows me what Johnny Taves does in crunch time. And, sure. And, and with all due respect, I know Strom won a couple draws, but, um, look, uh, to say a guy's gassed, I, I'm sure he was, I'm sure that's the way he felt, but if my season's on the line, uh, and I've got a hall of famer who's won three rings and, you know, who's played well, you know, in Edmonton, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die in the hill with him. And, and like his his evaluation of John Quenville, you know, he, he really thought John Quenville had a great game. I mean, I I didn't see he had a, he might've had a great John Quenville game, but like um, at the end of the day, you know, physicality wasn't needed with two minutes to go in the game. An equalizer was needed with two minutes to go in the game. I mean, so I, I, I think there was some growing, you know, just like anybody else. I mean, there's no, sure. there's no perfect answer to any of this, and it's, it's learning experiences for everybody. But um, I don't know, Charlie, your, your, t- your take on, on those two, the Quenville situation and Taves late. Yeah, I honestly didn't mind the, the, the Jonathan Taves mishandling. I think the only mishandling was the lack of the timeout. I don't think he mismanaged when he put Taves on the ice because there was a TV timeout at exactly the four-minute mark, and usually that comes around six and six and a half minutes. So it's not like he, you know, it's not like he missed a shift in his mind where he didn't map it out right in his head. He said it was TV timeout, put Jonathan Taves on the ice. He logged a one-minute shift. He missed the next shift, obviously, to take a break. And then he went back on the ice and, and had a 55-second shift. And that ended at 1.22. 1.22 left in regulation. So, yeah, at that point, maybe you probably call a timeout and you put him back on the ice. And it's unfortunate that there was no stoppage from the 1.22 to the end of regulation. But I didn't have a problem with the way they handled Taves up until the 1.22 mark. I don't think he mismanaged the time or anything. But it was nice to kind of hear his rationale behind why you know he, the, the decision went into that and I think for me like you know I think you know I would agree you know I don't know if you guys agree with me but I thought it was the right move to, to sit Alex Nylander like I didn't think he was he wasn't making an impact and he probably could have sat the previous game as well and you know maybe you know I think Dylan Secura probably deserved a shot like if you want to get some scoring out there you want to balance out the lines like give Dylan Secura a shot and I know Vegas plays a physical game, so it might not be right up Dylan Secura's alley. I think the thing that bothered, you know, fans, and rightfully so, is the fact that John Quinville, you know, through 40 minutes of play, like he was right up there in ice time with, you know, the top guys. And so it was like, well, wait, this is an elimination game. Like, you know, this ice time should be going to someone else. And I get the reasoning behind wanting to balance out the lines. Like, you know, maybe you give John Quinville a few more extra shifts in the first period so you can keep guys like, Patrick Kane and, and Alex to bring in Jonathan Davis healthy for the second and third period that I don't mind, but 
you know, obviously it's, it's a difficult decision. I wonder how much, you know, we're, we're all, we're putting this on Jeremy Colleton, obviously as the head coach, but like at some point, like Mark Crawford, like also needs to, um, you know, that's a veteran coach that's won a Stanley cup. So, you know, it'd be, it, you know, obviously we, we can't talk to assistants, but I wonder how much Jeremy uses Mark Crawford as a sounding board and how much agreement there is between the coaching staff when they make decisions like that. Yeah. I mean, look, I had no problem with Nylander sitting at all. I, I, I thought he should have sat sooner and I thought his leash was way too long this year. My issue, and I didn't have a problem with Quenville being in the initial lineup. And, and if you want to start him with Taves, that's fine. But when Saad sets up the, the, the first Taves goal to start the game, like Saad had an up and down, you know, like he was either awesome or he was not noticeable to me game to game. It seemed like in game five, he was noticeable. And, you know, he made a great play uh, because he, they, they made a line change and Quenville came off and he ends up setting up uh, that first Taves goal to start, the, to start the, the game off. At that point, I'm beginning to say, all right, well, that, they work together. They've been aligned all, you know, the, the bulk of the last few weeks. Uh, maybe we, you know, certainly get them back together second or third period. And it just never really, it, it never materialized. That's what surprised me. I guess, Pat, I have a couple issues with, with Quinville coming in. And, and to credit to Jeremy, I, I did not think he had a bad game at all in game five. And, and I think he kind of earned those minutes and played well with them. But again, from the first time he came in in the postseason, right away, I think he, me and maybe you guys and fans are thinking, why not get a more offensive guy in there? Why not Dylan Sakura or somebody like that? I think that's a fair critique. And some of the, the reasons we've heard, whether it's from uh, the Hawks or, or maybe some people in broadcasting is why Quinville's in because he's big, big body, physical. We talked to him in the room. I don't think he's that big, right? Am I the only guy? Who does, I don't think he's, 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 a, he's a huge, a huge guy out there, but I think he played fine. And also in, in, the decision with Taves there towards the end of the game. I think that, that Taves and, and Kubalik just kind of did disappear in that Vegas series. So I, I probably won't doubt Carlton at all for any way he, he handled Taves there, despite his resume, which, you know, speaks volumes as to what he can do. And I think it was awesome to see the way Taves came back and completely took over that Oilers series. And I think he can still do that. I just think it was noticeable that him and uh, Kubalik and, and guys in that top line kind of did disappear in Vegas against Vegas, I should say. Do we think it's a fait accompli that Kubelik, Strom, and Kajula are all back as, and will be signed as restricted free agents? I will say this. It's going to be very difficult for them to bring back all four if you don't move money around. Like, you need to, you need to get creative. And, you know, obviously we did hear Stan Bowman, and, I'm, you know, I'm sure – fans were, were kind of up in arms about it, you know, when he said that this is going to be a similar group next year. And I think the reason it's going to be a similar group is that the Blackhawks financially can't do anything, right? Like, that's just the reality. Like, what are they supposed to do? And so, you know, you, you have to move money out to, to really make it work for, for the guys that you want to resign. And so it's going to be difficult and it's going to take sacrifices, maybe for the player side, maybe take a shorter term deal, lower AAV, um, you know, and maybe have your max, uh, contract, you know, you cash out once the salary cap really uh, and the financial situation kind of bounces back. But if they want to sign, even three of the four is going to be difficult. They got to move money around. Yeah, I agree with Charlie. I, I think that 
what he said was the, the team is going to look similar, but it isn't going to be the same. I mean, he definitely alluded to the fact that there are going to be some changes. I, and I do think it's going to come down to, to money. Charlie's right. Uh, whew, I don't know how you, I don't know how you financially can, can keep everybody and then still pay out on some of those other ones, Pat. I mean, I'm not, I don't normally dive into the, to the nuts and bolts of the money on, on, on teams contracts. It's just, that's just really not my my area. I, I like the, the game better and the product that's actually on the ice. But, oh, boy, I mean, they're definitely going to be up against it money-wise. And I'm not sure what the math is on how, on how you make it work unless something changes. And I don't know how you do that. <laughs> it's probably why I'm not a GM, Pat. Probably the only reason why I'm not an NHL GM, but that's yeah. okay, whatever. Yeah, I, really like, point. I love the game of hockey. <laughs> just those numbers, those damn numbers. You can't do the math. The this, I did my, this thing you call it. <laughs> I had a great golf game yesterday. I did the score wrong. I was actually lower than I thought I was. Uh, nah. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to have the guys' bold predictions to this upcoming offseason, the next pause for the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. The guys will give us their bold predictions coming up next on the Blackhawks Talk podcast. But first, Monday, August 24th marks one year out from the Tokyo Paralympics. The world will come back together to celebrate competition, unity, and the triumph of the human spirit as the best athletes on earth pursue a dream delayed. The Tokyo Paralympic Games begin next August, only on NBC. All right, guys, it's bold prediction time. And uh, Charlie, who is, uh, is uh, auditioning for Baywatch 4, he's got his uh, <laughs> tank on and he's got his zinc on his nose and he is ready to go out and... Run on the beach. Uh, before you do that, can you give us your bold prediction, Charlie? Absolutely. I take that as a compliment, by the way, because we deserve an offseason after being stuck inside with each other for damn right. <laughs> My bold prediction, and we just talked about it with how they're going to make this money work. I think the Blackhawks have two buyout candidates, Olimata and Zach Smith. I think for sure one of them will be bought out. And I also think that there will be a surprise trade that we don't see coming. And Pat, I texted you this the other day about Olimata. He turns 26 years old on Saturday, which means if a player is younger than 26 and the team wants to buy that contract out, the, the team is on the hook for one third of the salary. If the player is 26 or older, the team is responsible for two thirds. But I got clarification on this. In the new CBA, the first period buyout window happens, uh, you know, it, it, they negotiated that the first period of the transaction happened on June 15th. So that if the Blackhawks want to buy out Olimata, they can do so and still have, you know, be on the hook for one third of the salary. It won't be two thirds because now it's on August. So just wanted to get that out there because I know there is going to be some confusion when we, you know, I'm sure fans are going to go on cap friendly and use that and see a different number than originally expected. but. I think one of those two guys. Yeah. What do you think the trade market is for Olimata? So he's got two years left. He's making $4 million with the way he played. And look, he's what? He's 26, 25. Or he's going to be 26. Yeah. You said yeah. he's going to turn twice. So, I mean, he's, he's relatively young and that's not a crazy number. It's not, you know, it's not pocket change money, but uh, do, do you think, could you see them making a deal with Mata? The difficult part about this, I think in a normal year, maybe his trade value goes a little bit up after that postseason. But 
the fact that teams across the NHL are also going to be in a financial cap strap situation. I don't know how, you know, maybe the teams are looking at the Blackhawks like, okay, that could be a potential buyout candidate. So maybe we'll wait, you know, for, for that to, to kind of simmer and then he can choose us. But I don't know, like, you know, I don't know. He obviously was one of their best defensemen, most productive defensemen, led them in goals and points and had the best five on five goal differential. So uh, I, I certainly think he, you know, increased his value a little bit, but maybe not to the point where it's like, okay, now this guy has serious trade value for the Blackhawks. Scotty, what's your bull prediction? I'll throw two your way. I, th- I think Crawford and the Hawks definitely want to work things out for obvious reasons. I think he's going to help them out. Uh, two-year deal, $4 million per. Um, and I, I think that how good Kirby Doc looked this postseason is not good news for Dylan Strom. I think they are going to want to keep some of those other RFAs that improve their cases, uh, guys like a Slater Cuckoo. Um, and it could Jula maybe even, and uh, I don't think they're going to be able to keep strong because of it. Nick, what do you have for us? Ooh, I'm kind of a little bit with, uh, with everybody on those, but I do think that we're going to see a, uh, a, a jaw dropper of, uh, of a trade happen at some point in that off season. And I think it'll be one that maybe will shock some people and I think it'll benefit the Chicago Blackhawks, but I think there'll be some sticker shock initially. I will say this. I want to follow up to Scott. If you move Dylan Strom, you know that's not going to sit well in the locker room with Patrick Kane and Alex Debrinkit, who have really developed those chemistry together. And so I want to put that out there that you would be making shockwaves, I believe, inside the locker room if you move a guy like that. And I get it. We're, you know, every, everyone is up against the, the salary cap, and you're going to have to make tough, tough decisions. And I agree. Like, I do think, you know, Dylan Strom's situation is very interesting given the emergence of Kirby Doc, but. Boy, I think you do have to consider what that will do inside the locker room if you move a guy like Strom. 100% have to consider what that does to the locker room because that no, is one of the areas yeah. you're trying to you're trying so hard to make sure that room is cohesive and they they took massive steps towards that I think during this uh during this three week last three week periods and you definitely will try not to shake that up as much as you can. For sure, My but it was bold. shaken up with uh, Hammer, Yarmelson going, and, and Panarin. So, I mean, sometimes you just, you just can't stop some of these moves from happening. That's all. And I agree the chemistry seemed really good during this postseason. So my bold prediction is the Hawks are going to deal one of their core players. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot, a lot of lines along the lines of what you guys were saying, but they have to. They're up against the cap. Their championship window and timeline, it's – it's a few years away, and you look at the time remaining. You know, Kane has three years left. Taves has three years left. Duncan Keith has three years left. And Brent Seabrook has four years remaining. Saad has one year left. So I, I think, you know, you, you will see one of those players, and I think there's a, you know, there's a couple that I would absolutely not want to move. But this is the first time, and it pains me to say it, because these guys have brought so much joy to this town. They're so much fun to watch. Um, But with where this team is at, it's timeline to win another championship. Uh, And and where they fit in the grand scheme, I I think we're definitely going to see one of those guys. And, And I know a lot of them have no movement clauses. Uh, to me, only I think only Saad doesn't have one. Uh, I do think there's ways 
to work around that, work with the player, find a, a common landing spot and, um, and say, hey, look, you know, we love you, everything you did for this team. Uh, and we're in a different timeline right now than you are. Um, and give us three teams you'd like to go to to go make another run at a cup. And we'll, we'll try to make it work for you. Pat, this podcast is coming full circle because the first thing I said was that they're going to have to make some uncomfortable decisions this offseason. And so, you know, you have, maybe you have to have those uncomfortable conversations with some of those core players and explore, you know, a, a trade or, you know, however, you, however you're going to do it. They're, they're going to have to create cap flexibility, and I don't think anything can really be off the table. Nick. I'm pretty sure I have a no-move clause. <laughs> Where are you now? I'm in Denver. I'm in Denver right now. I'm okay. in Denver right now. I'll be back in Chicago soon to take Charlie's money on the golf course. <laughs> that if you want to get in on that, Scatter, let's, let's go, boys. I'll be on the beach. Yeah, that's right. As long as you come with your tank top, Charlie. Gosh, you keep throwing pictures like that out on Twitter too. You're gonna make people start feeling feeling stuff where they're bud. <laughs> like David Hasselhoff's son. Hey, shout out to you boys for, for an awesome season. Uh, this was so fun to do it. I know even during the pandemic, it got a little bit challenging trying to create content together and even these podcasts, but it was, it was honestly the highlight of, of the, the pandemic, knowing that we get to do this uh, on a you know, daily basis or regular basis for our podcast and talking to you every day. So it was a fun season and I hope to do it again next year. Yeah, you well, guys hey, are awesome. Hey, Charlie, we're not, we're not stopping po- doing podcasts, baby. <laughs> yeah, let's keep it going. I was going to yeah. ask that. We're still going, right, Pat? I mean, I, mean, I guess that's a, segue to a, that's a segue to a commercial, but we're still rolling over the summer, right, boys? Yeah. The beach is calling, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to Charlie. All right, guys, great job as always. Uh, thanks for all your help, all uh, resume of play long on the podcast, and uh, we'll certainly be talking to you throughout the upcoming offseason as well. Uh, that's a wrap for this edition of the Blackhawks Talk Podcast. For Charlie Romelio, to Scott King, Nick Ismondi, I'm Pat Boyle. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate us, and we'll catch you next time on the Blackhawks Talk Podcast. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm -mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.